0: Okay, well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, it's right at 4 o'clock, and they cut our time down a little bit this year, so I want to make sure I'm able to finish on uh, time and get in everything that we want to talk about. My name is April Perry, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I work at, I'm on the faculty at Duke University School of Medicine, and also I'm the clinical educator for Duke Home Care and Hospice. I also uh, founded a um, nonprofit called Luke's Mission that promotes public health initiatives in Haiti, And I've been working there for the last 10 years. Um, I regularly lead medical mission trips from our church and other places to Haiti for the last eight years and have been heavily involved in promoting um, public health in rural and urban slum areas um, in Haiti. So I'm really familiar with Haiti. Uh, I'm actually here with one of my good friends who's a Haitian physician um, that we have sponsored through medical school. And uh, I'm really happy to be at the conference again. I've been here for the last five years, and I've been able to speak for the last four years. So it's just a great honor and privilege for me to be able to talk to you, especially on the topic today, near and dear to my heart. Um, I was able to, because of my knowledge of the culture and language of Haiti, um, several um, disaster relief groups uh, contacted me to go down immediately after the earthquake, which was really good for me, It was therapeutic for me, um, as well as I was, felt like I was able to do something that was valid and worthwhile for the people that I've really come to love in Haiti. So today I'm going to talk to you about an overview of what that experience was like for about the first two-thirds of the time, and then the last third I'm going to talk to you about what... Um, The problems you encounter in disaster relief, especially in uh, third world country. I did do some disaster relief following Katrina, and that was a very different picture, um, as you can imagine. Even how horrible it was here in the United States for us, and it wasn't really a stellar time for us, um, it was far better than anything we experienced in Haiti. So I'm going to go over uh, the the good things and the difficult things and the things that if you ever do disaster relief, In healthcare, that you need to really pay attention to because um, there's a lot of things that are impacting you at one time, and you need to really be aware of um, the problems that you can encounter so that hopefully you can get through them safely. Um, I always start my talks off, I've done a good deal of talking about this because, um, but we had four friends who died in the earthquake, and I really want to memorialize Bozzi Souffrant, who was a very good friend. Um, He died when his school collapsed, and 23 other people um, in his school died immediately. Um, It wasn't a pretty scene. His um, pastor hardly was able to recognize his body. And um, he had been translating for us for the last eight years, and I was just devastated uh, when I found out that he died. But I was... um, very sure that with the number of people that were affected by the earthquake that we were going to encounter people that we knew that had died, and um, Bosi was one of them. This is baby Jude. He was 18 months old. I had just met him six weeks before the earthquake um, when we were traveling to Haiti. I was there um, in late November before the earthquake in January 12th, um, The building where he was in collapsed on him and his um, caretaker, who was a nun, and he was killed in the earthquake as well. And this is Sister Carmel, who was um, the, uh, the head of the entire orphanage that we supported there. And so we're very, very sad to hear of Jude's death. Sister Udell was the novice nun who was taking care of him, and they found her body on top of his um, once they removed the rubble. She really did try to save him. She was 22 years old and had dedicated her life to serving the poorest of the poor in Haiti, and it was just a tragedy um, that she died in in this earthquake. So on the day of the earthquake, January 12th, um, at noontime, I had just been given this very prestigious award at Duke University Medical Center as Community Caregiver of the Year. It's a great honor, and I was, um, and it came w- with it a $5,000 award for our organization, and I was just shocked. I didn't know that, I knew I had been nominated, and I had attended the um, reception, but, and they didn't announce the winner until the reception. I was just really shocked, but anyway, I was so grateful, and we were celebrating, and it was just a wonderful thing, and we thought this would really help promote our mission to people in the community and what we were doing in Haiti. And two hours later, I was sitting at my desk at work, and I got a news pop-up that there had been an earthquake in Haiti. And Haiti has had a lot of disasters, and, um, you know, we just had an earthquake in um, San Diego. I don't even know if any of you heard of it t- uh, last week. But it's hard to know when you get these news things exactly what they mean. So I was especially with the news today, but it, I was worried, um, and so we were going out to dinner to celebrate this, and my friends and I, we were like, oof, I don't know, they said it was a 7.0, and what does that mean? And they couldn't really say exactly where it was, and so when we went home, I started seeing on TV places that I knew places I had been, which were now nothing more than a pile of rubble, and I knew at that point that this was really going to be terrible. And as time went by, over the next few days, it became much more anxiety-producing, knowing that there were many, many people hurt and dead, seeing entire buildings collapsed, hearing what people had, were talking about, seeing the pictures on the news, and we were not able, of course, to get hold of anyone because the entire cell service was down for four days after the earthquake. There was no internet. Um, so over time we did find out, um, you know, that some people had died, how things were. But I want to give you a little bit of context of how, what, what the healthcare system is like in Haiti and in what context this horrible, worst disaster in modern history occurred. There are less than a thousand doctors in the whole country of Haiti, so, uh, to cover 8 million people. Um, at my hospital alone, Duke University Medical Center, we have over 1,800 doctors, and there are only less than 1,000, somewhere between 600 and 800 in the entire country of Haiti. They really have no diagnostic equipment. You may find an occasional X-ray machine, um, I'm always weary, leery of them because there's no technologists. There's no um, people who really know how to measure how much x-ray you're actually getting. Um, in places where we have sent people, um, the collimator was broken. They, didn't, they couldn't, you know, narrow the field down. And so it's a lot of problems with lack of diagnostics. Certainly there's nothing like MRIs or CT scanners. You're lucky if you have a lab that can run some basic lab tests for you and ultrasound. Um, there's lack of government regulation. The government was before the disaster in complete disarray. Um, There was no real government agencies to control or oversee health care. There is a Ministry of Health, but it's it's a sham, basically. Um, They don't have any equivalent of our FDA or Health and Human Services, nothing at all like our FEMA. Um, They are just completely impotent as a government, and they basically have been since their um, history and have a long series of of presidents and leaders who have been not only corrupt but not able to care for the people. And obviously that is what has made Haiti the poorest country in North and South America where most people uh, live on less than a dollar a day. They obviously have nothing like joint commission. Um, this is a picture I took in the hospital I was working at. So there's no, clearly no um, infection control, no sharps placed. I mean, this whole five-gallon bucket was filled with used um, sharps. And you know, I just tried to steer clear of it, but I did want to get a picture of it. Um, and it's a really scary thing. These are the kind of things you see all the time. The Ministry of Health really is just not comparable to anything in the United States. Um, and so it's not really something that uh, is, I can really give you a different perspective on. There are a few small private hospitals. Most of the hospitals that are available to the public, of which 80% of the people live in abject poverty, um, are horrible. The first time I went into the general hospital in Haiti, uh, in Port-au-Prince, I cried for three days. I mean, it, there, there was dirt floors, um, people, the... The patients were on beds that were dirty. There was no linens on any of them. The mattresses were old. They were, um, there was no cleanliness about anything. Um, the the health care that's available to the poor is pretty poor. Um, most healthcare care agencies who rate um, third world countries will rate Haiti as a one on a scale of one to ten. Um, NGOs mostly do the medical care in Haiti. Um, not many, much of the, is it it's able, I mean, there is provision for health care in Haiti, but it's very, very poor. If you're going to get um, medical care in Haiti, you, you probably need to go to a um, hospital or a clinic that's run by an, a non government organization or charity. Long and short term teams probably provide 30 to 40 percent of the medical um, care that's in Haiti, and some of them work with the Ministry of Health and some don't. Um, And the thing about working in Haiti for me is that you kind of can avoid a lot of the red tape that can slow you down with other things simply because they don't really care. Um, This is a typical room you will see in a hospital, Um, and uh, you can see it's dirty. It actually does have tile floors. This person is laying on... um, this is a, all of these pictures are pictures I actually took. The thing at the bottom is where he uses a bathroom, and this man is laying there. Who knows how long it's been since someone looked at him? The role of the family in, in Haiti is to stay with the patient and basically provide their care. Um, the nurses will put IVs in, change IV bags, maybe give medications, um, but all of the care re- really is done by the patient patient and their family. When you come to the hospital, you have to bring your supplies with you. Um, You have to provide all the food for your family members, and patients' families have to stay there. At least one person has to stay there. You'll often find them sleeping on the floor next to the bed or even under the bed. The role of the nurse is to do vital signs, sometimes administer IVs, dressing changes. They're, um, and I'm not criticizing this, I'm just stating as a fact. They, um, their nursing education is very different from ours. It doesn't involve a lot of critical thinking, it's a lot of rote, there's not a lot of pathophysiology involved, it's a lot of technical skills. Communication with physicians from a hospital, don't really exist. So doctors come in, see the patient, and then you don't see them anymore until the next day. And there's no communication really about anything that has happened from the time they're there until the time they get back the next day. So this is the context into which the, wor- the world's worst disaster in modern history occurred. This horrible healthcare system. This is a pharmacy in Haiti, literally. Um, you will find people selling drugs on the street like this. I have no idea where they got them, how long they've been there, if they're even viable still. Um, But this is a pharmacy in Haiti. And you can see he's made this a very attractive little store, this vendor. But that's really what it is. So I went with the North Carolina Baptist Men Disaster Relief Team. This was our team. We had several physicians, myself, a couple nurses, and um, several EMTs. Then we had several translators um, and two Haitian doctors who worked with us, uh, and a radiology technician when we got there, this was what we saw. Um, people were everywhere, on the street, in any kind of parking lot you could find, under any kind of s- shelter that you could find. Um, they estimated that several hundred thousand people were injured in an a, um, in area much smaller than Louisville um, and with real, virtually no way to take care of them. So all of these little pocket areas of care um, you know, popped up. People were being taken care of in parking lots. Um, Many people obviously had things like crush injuries. They needed surgery or amputations. um, Lots of bleeding, um, hemorrhaging. Many people needed blood and were unable to get it. But this is what you saw, patients in every available space that you could find on the street. This was not even at the hospital yet. These are some people who were sort of in a transition. They were coming, getting um, you know their wounds bandaged, and if they didn't need to stay, then we really had to send them out and have them come back. As you can see, these people are in a parking lot. They've got IV poles hung on the parking sign, that woman has just had her leg amputated. And these are all real. This is not um, this little boy had had uh, a lot of um, skin abrasions and fortunately was okay though. So I worked at two hospitals, Patronville Community Hospital, which is a small hospital in Haiti I had never been to before. It holds about 40 people on a good day. Um, and when we pulled up, this is what I saw. It was really a tent city hospital. And I was the only person on my team who had been to Haiti before and had any familiarity with it at all. Um, and this shocked me. And I was, I really was shocked to see this kind of thing when we pulled up. Um, We saw lots of collapsed buildings and lots of damage on the way there, but this was really, really difficult to see. Um, People, These people actually have a tent that they are inside, but you can see there's like seven or eight people in there. They are laying on cardboard or anything that they can really find to lay on. Many of them are... Um, seriously injured. They have fractures that they have stabilized their fracture. Now they're just waiting for operating rooms to open up. This woman was outside. This is a typical bed you would find in a hospital in Haiti. She uh, was waiting to have her leg operated on. She had a um, serious fracture. Another woman we did have access to, the people before us, we got there six days after the earthquake. We had sent a team ahead of time to do some scouting um, to f- make sure that uh, we went with specific tasks in mind and weren't just part of the problem instead of part of the solution. So there, had, there were some people, Samaritan's Purse was on the ground within 24 hours, and they had some medical people there very quickly. And so there were some people who were starting to operate on people within uh, 48 hours. The, they did actually have some uh, external fixators that they brought with them, and, which was a great thing to do, but they ran out very, very quickly. As you can see, there's lots of bloody drainage on the places where people are laying. Um, it's not really a great place as far as infection control goes. I was walking into the hospital one day, and this woman called April, April, and I thought, Surely that's not, anyway, I turned around. This was a woman I actually knew. Um, she was a cook at the guest house that we stay at um, in this small village. And her, this is her husband. He had broken his um, arm, his leg, and had dislocated his other shoulder. And ha- he had had it operated on, and or it was casted up, and he was waiting for them to operate on him. But they were staying outside in this sort of tent shelter on the grounds there, um, waiting for surgery to occur. Um, More people. This woman was actually right near the door of the hospital. She had a serious infection in her leg that had been amputated, and so um, we kept her near the door so that you could sort of keep an eye on her. But the hospital was made for about 40 people, and at um, about the the middle of the time we were there, there was over 500 patients there on the campus. probably 300 of them were outside, but the rest of them were inside on every available space that you could find in every available cubbyhole that you could find. And so often we would go in, um, split our teams up. Some would stay in the hospital. The rest would do rounds on the people outside. And so that was really, um, she was someone we were kind of keeping an eye on. So in Haiti, the hospitals are um, usually based in a square with a courtyard in the middle. Everything is open air because there's no air conditioning, and rarely is there electricity. Um, so we were had this big open square courtyard, and the EMTs had gone ahead and set the system up um how we would be working. So we had four zones in this courtyard, and our job as um, our team was to do triage and get people to an area of treatment. Um, as quickly as possible. By the time we got there, there were multiple surgical teams on the ground. Um, Mostly when you have trauma, you're gonna need surgical um, teams in place. So we had two operating rooms in this hospital that were running 24 hours a day. And we had four teams that were um, supplying them. And they were two American teams and two foreign teams in this hospital. Um, One was from Sweden and the other one was from another European country, I can't remember. So um, we were triaging people, getting them stabilized, and getting them placed in areas where they needed to go to await whatever kind of um, treatment they needed. So the the, the system that the uh, EMT set up for us was we had zones, four zones, and I was in charge of one zone, did the the triage diagnostic workup. We did have an x-ray machine at the hospital but it wasn't always working. So we could get uh, x-rays um, to see if there were fractures. That was the main thing that we needed it for. And, um, we, and we were able to get that most of the time, at least able enough to see if there was a fracture or not. And so we would um, triage the patient, determine whether they needed surgery today, surgery tomorrow, or just to be seen. And so they were, that was um, number one was surgery today. That was an unstable fracture or someone who was in serious condition and needed to have Surgery today, surgery tomorrow could be someone with a stable fracture who wasn't hemorrhaging, was stable, but we could just wait and do them when we when we had an opening. And then to be followed would be someone who came in with abrasions or needed suturing or other kinds of things, and we could fix them up and send them home. And the way the um, EMTs... Are there any EMTs in the room? Okay. The way the EMTs set the system up was um, they had um, people come in, and this is a really good system for immediate triage of a large group of people, which is what we had. We had um, at least 1,000 people every day we had to triage. So they came in. We saw them, spent as, um, you know, as little time as possible assessing, figuring out if they needed something immediately. And then they, um, we, they would put a piece of tape on their forehead which said one, two, or three, and then they could easily be identified. So and I think that was a really good system. Um, for the immediate triage. I will tell you that I came in on uh, day 8, and there was this young man made me feel kind of bad. He, he came in. He had had his arm amputated and fixed on the first day. And I'd gone home and came back with a tetanus, um, bottle in his hand and said the doctor told him to come back and that we needed to give this to him. And he still, he had his thing on his head that said two. He, he had been walking around in the community with that on. I'm like, you can take that off now. And, um, And we did get uh, some armbands on, which, as a nurse, I felt a lot better about doing that than having people with um, tape on their head. But it was a really easy way to identify people quickly when you have hundreds of people and figure out who needs to to go where. So we did use the zone system, which I think worked really well. This is a woman... um, pretty much to me typified the situation she came in with a stable fracture of her femur um this was seven days after the earthquake so she had been had this fracture for seven days but had been waiting to be seen it took them two days to get actually get to the hospital people were also afraid to come because they, they thought they had to pay and basically you know people can't pay in haiti Um, so she came in, she was one of the first ladies I saw on that day. She had a stable fracture, but it needed to be operated on. Um, and so we put her in a place in this, um, courtyard where she could stay. And this is how we hung the IV, and to me, this really typifies what disaster relief is about. You make do with what you have. We did not have IV poles, but we had a tree branch, and so we hung the IV on a tree branch. We were very fortunate we had IVs, um, which if you've heard anything about, you know, the problems in Haiti right now, lack of IV solutions is causing, you know, huge problems with this cholera epidemic. So um, this was also something I wanted to show you when you have to talk about uh, – Allocation of limited resources. Um, This was a man who had a spinal cord fracture, and we saw way too many of those. Um, And in Haiti, on a good day, there's not really any way to treat a spinal cord fracture. Um, So he was a man in his 60s. He was basically paralyzed from the chest down. And what they had done was just decided to do palliative care on him. And when I came in the first day, I mean, I was greeted almost immediately with this sign, which to me, just told me the rawness of this situation we were looking at. This is a man where his DNR is written on a cardboard box that's sitting next to him. And, um, you know, people went over and made sure that he was taken care of. But it was really, really sad, Um, just heartbreaking to see something like this. And the worst part of it was to know that not only did you see this, but you had to move on. Um, So that was really difficult. Some man waiting to go into the operating room. He has his IV hung on the wall by tape. Um, We did have make sure that people, one thing in Haiti, they don't really have much medical records. So we made sure that anything that was related to their care stayed with the patient. And they were really good about making sure they kept their stuff. Um, So his x-ray is with him and his paperwork is with him. And so people just um, make sure that... the problem is um, passing off or handing off information to people, and it 's really difficult when you have people speaking four different languages in um, you know one air, one hospital area, so having access to what their problem is is really really important. The supply chain this is the depot now um, initially, I know there was a lot of uh, um, is- issues in the news and stuff about things not getting to Haiti. Um, and I will tell you that the reason we didn't get down earlier was be- we had a, a C-130 cargo plane ready to go with the team and a whole bunch of supplies because they were backed up for about 10 days getting people in and out of the airport. We had tons of supplies we had many many supplies pretty much everything we needed um, as far as what you would need for basic third world medical care Um, we ran out of external fixators but you can still set a fracture they did it long before external fixators were made Um, and it certainly makes it better if you have them but if you don't we still could do it We had a lot of medicines, we had a lot of supplies, we had a lot of bandages. Um, The problem was it was a big mess. Um, It was all dumped in this room about the size of this room. There were some wonderful community people there from, from, from Haiti who came just to try to organize things, to get us things we needed. So when we needed something, we would go to that window up there and ask them, um, you know, I need this or I need that, and, um, and they would try very hard to find it. But this was about 10 days after, and it was still very, very disorganized. So your supply chain is very, very important, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. This was a room that was designed for about six people. And we had about 20 people in it. There, um, this is me rounding with my translator one day. Really, we just came around, saw the people, tried to make room for more. If we could, anybody who want, who could go home, who didn't need to be there, we wanted to try to send home. The problem was people didn't want to go home. Um, they were afraid now. Many people, even today, ten months later, are not sleeping in their homes. They're sleeping in tents outside on the front of their homes because they're still afraid of something crashing in on them. Um, many people had nowhere to go. And so getting them out of the hospital was difficult. This is a typical degloving injury. We saw many injuries like this where people had been pulled out from rubble. you, this, this would heal without a skin graft. Um, these kind of things healed long before we did skin graft, but it takes a good deal of care and maintenance of it. Um, and we did have a, a plastic surgeon down there for four days when I was there who actually had a dermatome um, machine with him and could do some grafting. So anybody that needed grafting, we kept him busy for almost the, um, you know, the whole time he was there. This was another injury of a little girl I took care of who had her foot crushed and she did end up getting a a really nice skin graft before I left. She also had a fractured ankle. Many people were dressing changes, looking at their wounds. Um, I will just tell you that there were lots of levels of care um, represented. Um, Lots of levels of surgical expertise. Um, This one boy who came in with the tetanus, I took his dressing off and I... I've just never seen anything quite like that. Um, he, his, he had a high uh, humorous amputation, and the um, muscle and this uh, tissue were held together with three giant sutures. And I was just really shocked by that. Um, so we got him hooked up to go back for a relook and a revision at some point later on. But he was also on doxycycline, which is not the best medication for preventing postoperative infections. so we changed him from that. So you'll see lots of levels of medical care from not necessarily the Haitians, but the other relief groups that came there. And um, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying that that was a fact. This really is another, this and that other picture of the IV pretty much typifies to me. I'm changing a dressing here sitting on the floor. Um, this woman was lying on the floor. She had an abdominal injury, and uh, she was lying on the floor in a cardboard box and I was changing her dressing. Um, several, a lot of people had amputations of various parts of their body, some just with toes or fingers. Um, you still could get gangrene in, in even small um, places where you had crush injuries, so those were very important. Who knows what this is? This is traction in the third world. Um, you make do with what you have, and actually this is what traction would look like before the earthquake. So bottles filled with water. A woman had a pelvic fracture. She needed to be immobilized, so they filled bottles with water and hung them at the bottom to keep um, her pelvis. Um, they did take one of the operating rooms and turn it into a quasi-intensive care unit. This, young, this woman um, in the white shirt there, she was Haitian-American nurse from, um, from uh, Miami. Who had just got on a plane, went to the Dominican, and got to Haiti. I mean, nothing was going to stop this woman, and she took over that ICU and was just um, really ran it in just a great way. There was about six beds in there. That was also the PACU where people came in after their surgery to be recovered. But we did have people who had serious, um, who were seriously ill. Um, This woman is on uh, CPAP or some kind of quasi-ventilator. This woman had um, a hemoglobin of three. Uh, We we often see people in Haiti with hemoglobins of five, but I have never seen somebody alive with hemoglobin of three. And that was not related to the earthquake. She was extremely malnourished, um, and we were able to get blood for her, but it took really a lot of effort and two days to get blood for her. So being a... (laughs) advanced practice nurse, um, you know, the, this woman from Miami said, okay, hang this blood. And I'm like, okay, and the protocol for your blood. Said, she's like, just do it. And so anyway, <laughs> I have to tell you, um, these things come back to you. I mean, I hadn't hung blood in, I know, 15 or 20 years. But anyway, I remembered how to do it. And um, and that's, you know, it was it was fine. The second hospital I worked at was St. Damien's um, um, Petit Frere and Serre Hospital, this is the artist's rendition of it. It's a it's a wonderful organization, and this was what it was supposed to look like. This is what it looked like after the earthquake. Um, it's, it's run by the Catholic organizations, um, both in America and in Europe. Again, we had people outside, everywhere. Italian surgery, um, the Italians brought their own mobile um hospital, and they had four operating rooms that they set up in this tent. This is the preoperative area, and then there's two tents beyond there that have two operating rooms, and they were as modern, except for that the walls were flexible, as what we would have at Duke. So it was pretty amazing to see that happening. And the Italians did most of the surgery with the American group at um, this particular hospital. Again, there was a lot of people... Everywhere, Um, this was a man who had had a motorcycle accident. wasn't related to the earthquake, but um, we were able to um, get people to an acute care facility. Um, This was how we transported them. These are two of my team members. In Haiti, their public transportation is called tap-taps, and they're these um, brightly colored trucks that have benches in the back. Many of the tap-tap drivers just came to the hospitals and offered to use this as an ambulance, and so we were transporting this man who had a serious head injury. Off of shore was the USNS Comfort, which is the hospital ship for the Navy. Um, The United States Navy immediately sent the Comfort down, and I got this one picture of it. This is a actual picture in, in Haiti that I took. Um, and it was really a really neat thing for me to see this. You know, those red crosses on there, no, that was from the United States to help out. They were able to um, come pretty quickly and treat people. They had 350 beds. And our li- um, we set up a, um, a logistics officer, which liaisoned with the Comfort for all the main hospitals that they were working with uh, to see if seriously injured people who had a fairly decent prognosis could be taken out to the comfort. So this man with the head injury was sent out to the comfort. Um, they had very strict criteria on how, who we could ship out, and two of our people on our team were in charge of evaluating people um, daily to see if there were people who might be able to go out there. So let me just tell you a few Um, cases. This is Jude Lee. He was two years old. He had, as you can see, a very high above the knee amputation of his right leg. This is his mom taking care of him in the hospital. And again, this was a pretty nice, it's only five years old, this hospital, and it was very clean. And um, this was the first time I'd ever been in this particular hospital. The way that we identified things is um, when I was over uh, at this hospital, I was over a ward of about 16 patients. And it's hard when you have, again, multiple different teams from different countries to know how to communicate with people. So they would write up the name of the team on the bandage so you would know immediately how to take So this was America One. That was our team. So I knew that our docs had taken care of this patient. This was just a really poignant picture I took one day. This mom really worried about her child who was um, laying there in the crib. A lot of people asked about transport. Um transporting patients was really difficult. In all of the uh, problems that you might think you would have to deal with, transporting patients is not one of the ones that would come to the top of the list. But I'm telling you, it's a problem. Um, Fortunately, in the children's hospital, you could carry people, but in the adult hospital, it was really hard. There are no stretchers or gurneys. There's very few wheelchairs, and most people couldn't really go in a wheelchair. They really needed a stretcher. We did get later on... In both hospitals, some of these military kind of things. But I'm telling you, you can transport a kid on one of these, but it takes three good-sized men to transport a regular-sized adult on one of these um, to, like, X-ray or somewhere else. This was a conference room in that hospital that we did have one neonatologist there um, And, you know, people were still having babies during this. And so we made this room into a little um, neonatal ICU where some of the kids could get watched over. I could not believe this if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. This was a one-pound baby that was born the day of the earthquake. And he's laying there. He's not on a vent. He does have an IV in, but they were watching him carefully. And, I I mean, I really – you can see the pacifier, and that gives you an idea of how big he is or small. These were two twins that were born right after the earthquake. They were doing really well. Each weighed about four pounds. Then we work in a mountain village where Jude was, and I took one day and went up to the mountain village. They had a beautiful orphanage up there in this rural mountain village, and these two nuns who took care of it, everything was destroyed, everything. It leveled the entire complex. Um, They had a three-story guest house where we used to stay. Everything was gone. Um, They had four people die there besides Jude and the the nun. Several of the other sisters were uh, injured, one broke her leg. Um, and they all ended up having to come down to Port-au-Prince to be, which is about two hours away. And this is how 64 children and 14 nuns were living when I got up there. Um, it, was, it was just horrible. So where are we now? Well, currently there's 232,000 people that are recognized as being dead. I mean, that is almost a quarter of a million people dead from this disaster. To give you some sort of perspective, in 1996, I don't know if any of you were watching the World Series when the earthquake hit San Francisco, but we had the exact same um, degree earthquake in San Francisco in 1996, and 68 people died there. So we have a terrible, terrible situation here. I want to show you a little bit about what it means to care for the dead in in this situation. And these are graphic pictures, but I think it's important that people understand. When you have a quarter of a million bodies to um, dispose of, it makes it very difficult to do it in a way. These are all people that are in the back of the hospital who had died that day. And these were people who were trying to put them in an area so that at least they could be confined. But as you can see, there's very little dignity. And I'm not I'm not saying that you could do any better than this, but there are probably several hundred people there who are um, dead. This is a, a bigger picture of that. And then ultimately, um, you can see actually in some of them, it looks like rigor mortis has already set in in some of them. Um, but it's, it, was a, it was a really, really difficult thing. They did have mass graves. Um, I heard more than one time, and I still hear. Um, you know, my mother went to work, and I've never seen her since, um, or my son went to school, and uh, he's never come home. This is what happened. Um, People were found. They were never identified. They were put in mass graves. And where we stayed in our compound, which was not affected by the earthquake, um, we had to drive by the mass graves every day. It was really, really difficult. And we would see um, basically dump trucks filled with human bodies that they were putting into these uh, mass graves. Some of them at the hospital where they were burying them, Um, they did have these cardboard coffins, and I took this picture, I just thought, somebody is trying to really give some dignity to this process, which is just so so inhuman, it's really hard to describe. So when we talk about challenges in providing disaster care in the United States, it's Challenging, but you know all of these things we do in our hospital, um, disaster drills and stuff is to help us when these kind of things happen, but because you are going to have immediate overwhelm of the system, whether you 're in Haiti or here that 's why we practice disaster drills because we know we 're going to be overwhelmed, so we want to know what to do, um, but you have immediate overwhelm of the system, and you don 't need two hundred and thirty thousand people to die in Haiti to be overwhelmed. you just need you know a cholera. Outbreak with three or four thousand people affected to be completely overwhelmed. So you can imagine what that would be like. The lack of diagnostic capabilities, be able to recognize what you can and cannot do. Um, knowing that man had a spinal cord fracture, you know, compassionate palliative care was what we could do for him. And I stopped and prayed with him. I stopped and prayed with several people like that. But my energy really had to be spent on people where. I could actually try to save their lives. And I am not saying that that is an easy thing to do. It is extremely difficult. And um, you pay for it either then or later. So we'll talk about that too. Lack of coordination. We definitely saw this in Katrina, but in Haiti it was just um, eons worse. Um, Trying to get people there, we actually had to come through the Dominican Republic, drive 12 hours on a bus to get there, and that was pretty um, – the airport was down. You couldn't get planes in and out except for cargo planes. Um, It was really difficult to try to get people to the places that you needed them. Patient flow was another thing. Um, We had thousands of people coming to see us, and if they couldn't get in by the end of the day, then there would be a thousand more the next day. And so – The supply chain is another thing. Um, We had a ton of pediatric supplies at Paytonville Hospital. And we had none, really, what we needed at um, the petite Serre Hospital. So when I got moved, I asked, actually, to go to the pediatric hospital, because I have a lot of peds experience. I loaded up the van with everything that we could put in there. We had formula, bottles, diapers. We had all kinds of pediatric things. Um, I brought as much stuff as we could because there wasn't anything over there. And we were scrounging to try to find even just like uh, blue pads or chucks to use for diapers for these kids. So the pl- supply chain is very, very important. This is really, really critical. Um You come in and you're not familiar with the equipment, the drugs, the system. You're getting supplies from all over the world. We had uh, drugs from a whole, um, three pallets of drugs from Korea that were all in Korean, and none of us knew what they were. So we had a whole Korean um, team there, and so it was really hard, and it's scary. It's, It's really scary to see that. So one of the things they did before they left was to have somebody go through and write down stuff. But you're also not familiar with the system. Um, there was lots of different IV tubings. I mean, I haven't calculated a drip in years and years. Of course, there's no machines there, pumps. Um, they had these uh, roller things that you could – I mean, they were pretty cool. I haven't seen them before, but you could roll, dial them up and put like 25, 50, 75. So just learning – uh, oh, and then one, one day I was with the doc and we were trying to do this um, wo- irrigation for the wound and we couldn't figure out how to get the top off of the bottle of irrigant. And we were trying, both of us, and we couldn't get off. So finally he just took out his Swiss Army knife and started stabbing at the thing. So it's just that kind of thing adds to your stress, it adds to your frustration, and it also adds to your time allotment. You're taking more time, you know, here at home I can go do something. I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing because it's so automatic to me. Here I have to, okay, how do I even open this bottle? And so it really does take, um, make things more difficult. This was the morphine that I had at the pediatric hospital. 50 milligrams in one mil. When I saw, I went down, I'm like, I need some morphine for this kid. She just had her leg amputated. She was septic. And this is what they gave me. And I I was just, this was like middle to the end of the week where I was pretty stressed. Oh my! Like, oh my gosh! And so I literally I did go in a room by myself, sit down, think. Okay, how am I going to dilute this down? I mean, I was really scared getting a bottle like this. I have to give 0.2 milligrams, and I have 50 milligrams per mL. So. This kind of thing you cannot take lightly. Plus, you're hurrying, you're rushing. You look at that, oh, you might misread it, 5 milligrams per mil. And actually, someone in the OR did overdose with this. They got 2 mils of this, 100 milligrams IV. And he had a respiratory arrest. So fortunately, they bagged him, put him on a vent for a few hours, and he did come back. But, I mean, a nurse gave... You know, 100 milligrams of IV morphine. So this is the kind that of, you have to be very, very, very careful um, when you're dealing with things and you're rushing and you're not doing things sort of on autopilot like you do here at home. Language. I had charts in three different languages. I mean, it was really, really hard. I speak Creole. So basically I had to start from scratch every day, figure out what had happened with the patient, and that's another thing. Personnel overwhelm. Um, you know, we had varying degrees of uh, – varying ways people dealt with the stress on our team. Let me put it that way. Um, I tended to just kind of stay to myself. Um, other people tended to lash out at other people. Other people cried a lot. Other people were um, just overwhelmed. Um, it's – you have to really, really realize what your stress level is and how you can take care of it immediately it's really important. This is why you only go to disaster relief for 10 to 14 days. People say, oh, I'll go for a month or two months. You physically and emotionally cannot tolerate that level of stress and still function at the level that you need to with that degree of um, stress on you. So for first responders, it's really important. Get them in there. Let them do what they need to do, but get them out Um, because mistakes are going to start to be happening, and if not, uh, people are going to have emotional responses to the stress. You can't see dump trucks full of dead bodies and not have some sort of reaction, or you wouldn't be in this room. And so you need to make sure that you take care of yourself. This is really important, and I will not... um, minimize it. Um, I will tell you, I'm a pretty strong person and I've worked in Haiti for 10 years and I've seen some horrible, horrible things. But I came back from that trip and I was just emotionally numb for about 10 days. Um, I didn't want the TV on. I didn't want people talking to me. I just wanted to sit. I I wasn't obsessing about the trip. I was just really there. And it was really... um, I did go and get debriefing and post uh, um, counseling after the trip that was provided for us. And I didn't, I'm, I'm somebody who's pretty emotional and I cry pretty easily, but I didn't cry at this. I mean, I, I really was just emotionally numb because what I had to do was do what I had to do. And um, your psyche will take care of itself if you have a good, strong psyche. Um, But there will come a time when it needs to be taken care of. And somebody told me, I kept saying, you know, I'm kind of worried I'm not crying here. I'm a crier, and why am I not crying? Um, And my friend, she was so great. She said, it's sort of like a computer. She said, everything's stored on your hard drive. It's just not ready to print yet. (laughs) And so (laughs) I thought, that's a really good point. Um, So I want to just tell you that I'm not ashamed to say um, you know, I needed to talk to people about these were horrible things I saw. They were horrible, horrible things. They should never happen in this world. But they did. And I came back and I was really happy that I could have been part of it. But need for debriefing of your personnel is very important. And I know lots of people, at least two teams from our area who went and never got any kind of, um, debriefing afterwards. And I just don't think that was really a good thing. So the challenges, um, there were more deaths after due to sepsis, some secondary problems, tetanus. We saw at least three cases of tetanus while I was there. Two of them died. And now we, of course, have the cholera outbreak, um, which cannot necessarily be linked directly to the earthquake, but it could have very easily come at that time as well. Um, Two million people are homeless. There are about 1.5 million people in Port-au-Prince living in tent cities. Um, obviously, you're aware of this concern about Hurricane Tomas and and all of the things that could have happened with that. On top of all that, the people of Haiti are still going to have the health problems that they had. They're still going to have malaria. They're still going to have diarrhea. They're still going to have dehydration. They're still going to have worms. They're still going to have all the problems that they normally have on top of everything related to their um, trauma. And then, of course, disposal of the dead is a really um, serious thing to think about. The other thing is they anticipated about 15 to 20,000 orphans as a result of the earthquake and what's going to happen to those children. I'm sure all of you heard about the people who were, um, you know, attempting to move children to another part of of the country and out of the country related to that. And then one thing we encountered was people started to be afraid of anesthesia. Um, They saw people going in and to the operating room and coming out without a leg or without an arm. And so they didn't really want to be put to sleep because they were afraid of what would happen to them. Um, Informed consent doesn't exist in Haiti. We tried to tell people what it was, but... um, I mean, we always tell people what we're going to do anyway, and if they don't want it done, we won't do it. But it does it's not a concept that you can really carry out in that healthcare system. So I actually helped prep the Duke team that was getting ready to go down, and they were asking questions like that, and it was hard for me to say, um, you know, first of all, 70% of the people can't read or write, So they're not going to be able to read your informed consent. It's in English. You really are just going to have to tell them, let them know what it is. And if they don't want to do it, then that's fine. But it's not the same concept that you would have here. So those are different kinds of things. And then obviously they had about um, 30,000 amputations as a result of the earthquake. There is a cultural stigmatization to that as well as the socioeconomic implications. People have no legs or arms. They can't work. Um, They're already poor. If they can't have any sort of way of getting a job because they have no arm or leg, that's even going to make it worse for them. Revisions, we talked a little bit about this, but people are going to need revisions. Um, They're going to need prosthetics. Some people might need um, plastic surgery or other things to prevent complications. General follow-up, there was lots of issues in the last seven or eight months about NGOs still providing health care, how is that going to work, and then debriefing of the uh, Haitians as well as the American workers and the Haitians who are still having to deal with this kind of problem. So I want to just show you quickly um, one of the patients that I took care of. This is uh, Peterson Louis. He's 10 years old. We were told he lived in an orphanage. He had a um, below-the-knee amputation, and he had no parents with him there. And this was on my next-to-last day that I was there. And I found this one wheelchair in the hospital and the day that I left and was able to put him in it um, and take him out and around. And I just kept trying to th- – I thought about him a lot. He was a really sweet um, boy, and – Uh, There's lots more I could tell you about him. But anyway, he was able to get up on a walker for the first. um, This was a um, PT who had come on another team. Anyway, I tried to find him when I went back, and that's a hard thing because there's no medical records. There's no addresses. It's just really hard. People move from place to place. He might have been in a tent city. But anyway, it was a miracle we did find him. And he did get a prosthetic. And they did send a ton of prosthetic teams down to Haiti, which was my biggest worry because there were no prosthetic teams. One place where you could get prosthetic, um, but simply not anything that you would need to handle, 30,000 amputations. Anyway, we found him. We went to his house. He put this, his prosthetic on, and it's a little bit big so he can grow into it. And so I'm really happy at the response to the prosthetics. This was him and his mom and I was just, she actually wasn't an orphan. His mom was looking for him and found him the day after I left. So it was really, really a neat, um, a neat ending. This is Mick Lee. He lost both of, of his arms and was just the cutest little boy. Um, while we were there, we had an OT who, um, did some things with uh, the stove and ma- molded some a cup and a spoon, and within, like, uh, three or four hours, he was feeding himself and drinking with his feet. So it was really amazing. Um, Now, he will probably have difficulties as he grows older because having no arms is going to be a problem, even if he gets prosthetics. But it was really cool to learn um, how that is now. So I told you about 1.5 million are displaced. They've survived the first rainy season, but this is what the 10 cities look like. Um, and it's terrible. Um, people are, it, there's gushing rain in that. When the hurricane came, it was just really awful, and I have some video of that, but I just don't have time to show it to you. They are status post a cholera outbreak. Right now, they have estimated 5,000 people have um, had cholera, and about 400 have died, and this is this is something that's going to be an ongoing problem. Haiti has not had cholera in over 100 years, and so where it came from, how it got there, has got to be determined, but their water system is generally contaminated. So it's um, it's going to be a serious problem, and I, I just am not clear exactly how it's going to play itself out. There really is not a plan. People ask, where is the money going? I couldn't tell you. I could tell you where our organization has spent the money, but there's all this money. There's no plan. The Haitian government has just made it really difficult. Um, there are some good things happening. Partners in Health, which is Paul Farmer's organization, is building a new um, hospital. Um, but as far as replacing, there are still 1.5 million people living in the same shelters they were living in the day after o- the earthquake, and it's 10 months later. So I, it's just the general inadequacy of the Haitian government in able to get things through. So I really do feel like this is how many people feel there. Um, I have written a book um, called No Hands But Yours, and that comes from a poem by uh, St. Teresa of Avila, which says, God has no hands but yours to be the hands and feet of Christ to people. And um, it will be out uh, at the end of December, hopefully for the anniversary of the first year after the earthquake. Um, If any of you are interested in getting information on it, put green sheets on either side, you can leave me your stickers, and I'll be glad to send you information when it's ready. Um, I go through some really, really detailed stories in there that I think will help you understand um, what individual people experienced in the earthquake and not what the country of Haiti experienced. And it was really a tragedy, but I was really, really happy that I was able to be part of helping people, and I felt very gratified um, at the end of it. So... Thank you very much. If anyone has questions, I'd be glad to, to answer them. Yes. I have a question. Uh, I actually did about two weeks after the quake with the AGO. But I noticed that there was actually a revival starting to take place mm. in a lot of areas, and that was really exciting to see you know, after what they've gone through. Is that still going on? I know they've gone through a lot of difficulties since then. Yeah. Um, there was a national day of prayer, three days of prayer after and that was Promoted by the government, which was really a wonderful thing and helped support the evangelical Christians that are in Haiti. Um, and I do think that many people came to the Lord as a result of this, um, as it would be most anywhere. Um, I will tell you though, the Christian church is alive and well in Haiti. Um, there are many, many Christian churches there. Um, evangelicals that are promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ and they really need our support. And I think something like this is a way that people on the ground in Haiti, the Haitians, can use to help turn people to the Lord. So I really do think that that um, three-day prayer and fasting was really a wonderful thing that happened. The last estimate about a month ago was about 50,000 people come to Christ. Oh, cool, great, excellent. Mm-hmm. As a worker, how did you team food, water and shelter? Okay, good question. I usually show pictures of that because um, people often ask that. We were staying in a camp called uh, Global Outreach Ministries. It was about 30 minutes from the city. It was not affected. And we ha- it was a wonderful compound. Um, we had um, clean water. We had ice water, actually. We had uh, dorms that had about bunk, 50 bunk beds in each dorm, and we stayed in there. We were staying, um, Baptist men and Samaritan's Purse were sharing that compound. So we, uh, they had food for us every day. They sent lunches with us, and that's another thing. You, you must really take care of yourself. It does no good for you to like, you know, not eat or drink or keep yourself up because you're going to be of no good to other people if you don't take care of yourself. What I found myself doing was... Coming home, eating, and going immediately to bed. I mean, really, I just, the emotional drain on, um, just exhausted me. And so I just found myself doing that. We did have devotions in the morning and prayer time each day. But we had um, a a nice place to stay that was clean. We had food and clean water. And that's really what you need to make sure that you're able to do what you need to do. No, I've been, I've done relief work with um, Baptist men before and I also did some um, relief work with Katrina. Um, and I have done some work with Samaritan's Person in the past, not disaster relief, but other relief, but they know that I've worked in Haiti before. You can register for any of these organizations to be on call for disaster relief with them. Um, Baptist men called me first, and the, actually it was funny. As I was arriving home from Baptist men, I got a phone call on my cell phone from Samaritan's Per saying, can you leave tomorrow? I'm like, no, I'm just coming yeah. back. But they have subsequently called me since then. And I have been back to Haiti five times since the earthquake to monitor our work and also do some other things. So you can register with relief organizations and get on their list. You have to be able to leave immediately. I mean, they called me on Monday and said, at noon, and said, you're leaving at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So you have to be able to leave quickly and prepare quickly. Well, mm-hmm. the best way to get uh, rehab supplies? So the of walkers, that kind of stuff like- yes, we had a lot of, um, the best way to get rehab supplies. We had, I have a picture which showed a whole room full of walkers and crutches that, um, those supplies came down very, very quickly, very early. And so, they were available for people. Um, what what they didn't have was longer term rehab stuff like prosthetics, and they are getting that now. So there are a number of different agencies: Hangar Prosthetics, um, Helping Hands for Haiti was the organization, or that's it's helping something. I can't remember. They were the one organization that did prosthetics in Haiti, but their their compound was completely destroyed in the earthquake. So. Uh, we did have a lot of walkers and crutches, though. Immediately. Yes, I had to. Yes, and we—I had to teach people how to do their own dressing changes. I found them very teachable. I have found that in the past in Haiti. Um, we sent them home with supplies because we couldn't allow the, them to take up our time doing dressing changes. So I taught people how to do it, and they were, I was confident that they were able to do it. Thank you all so much. I really hope you have a great conference, and thanks. If you're interested in the book, leave your sticker on the green pages.